I've come out quite clearly pointing out the risks of large-scale access. I think I called it naive open source in 20 years' time, right? So that, what, what that means is if we just continue to open source absolutely everything for every new generation of frontier models, then it's quite likely that we're going to see a rapid proliferation of power. I mean, these are state-like powers which enable small groups of actors or maybe even individuals to have you know, an unprecedented one-to-many impact in the world. I mean, although I took a lot of heat on the open source thing, I clearly wasn't talking about today's models. I was talking about future generations, and I still think it's right, and I stand by that, because I think that if we don't have that conversation, then we end up, you know, basically putting massively chaotic, destabilizing tools in the hands of absolutely everybody. Hey, listeners, Rob here, head of research at 80,000 Hours. I expect you're going to be hearing a whole lot about the book we're discussing today, uh, The Coming Wave, Technology, Power, and the 21st Century's Greatest Dilemma, which is just getting its release this week. Its co-author, Mustafa Suleiman, was a co-founder of DeepMind. And on top of promoting this book, he also has a huge new AI company to run. So we only got an hour with him. Given that time constraint, I tried to focus on topics where Mustafa's 10 years at DeepMind might give him a unique perspective or insight as well as questions related to his new AI company, such as whether it's actually making risks from AI worse and how Mustafa hopes it might solve the problems laid out in his book. We also talk about whether we're about to be blown away yet again by models coming out over the next year, what mandatory regulations of AI companies Mustafa would really like to see imposed ASAP, as well as whether it ought to be legal to open source frontier really generally capable AI models. Without further ado, I bring you Mustafa Suleiman. Today, I'm speaking with Mustafa Suleiman. When young, Mustafa went to Oxford, but dropped out to help start the Muslim Youth Helpline and to work on human rights policy with the Mayor of London. But in 2010, he helped found one of the world's top AI labs, DeepMind, along with his childhood friend, Demis Hassabis. In 2014, DeepMind was then acquired by Google, and he became head of applied AI at DeepMind. Uh, While then in 2019, he left DeepMind to take up a policy role in the parent company, Google. In 2022, he left Google to found Inflection AI, along with LinkedIn founder Reid Hoffman. Inflection has received over a billion dollars in investment so far and is now working to build one of the largest supercomputers in the world. It's focused on building a helpful chatbot that's more personal, uh, offering emotional support and humor more than more than other chatbots that are out there. And it should also remember past conversations and gradually gain more context about uh, you and your activities. Uh, the hope is that it's going to grow into being a mix of a good therapist, a supportive friend, a business consultant, uh, and an executive assistant of sorts. They call this project and service PI for personal AI, uh, and you could try it out for yourself at personal.ai if you like. But this month, Mustafa and co-author Michael Baskar are publishing their new book, The Coming Wave, Technology, Power, and the 21st Century's Greatest Dilemma, which I have to say is an absolutely bracing read. Uh, It it makes the case that we are about to enter a period of dizzying technological change, uh, which could greatly improve the human condition, which could also lead humanity towards disaster in any of one of a a dozen different ways, uh, themes that I think will be familiar to regular listeners to this show. Thanks for coming on the podcast, Mustafa. Thanks very much for having me. It's uh, it's it's great to be here. I've long been a fan of the podcast and and the movement. So oh, um, wonderful, you know, it's great. Yeah, 
I hope to talk about how you intend for Inflection AI to help solve the problems described in the coming wave uh, and what you would like governments to require of AI labs. But first, I asked our audience to send in questions for you and and, and a recurring one was wanting to clarify when you think we'll have different uh, AI capabilities. So you've been quoted in some articles as saying that <laughs> it's plausible. It's a very difficult question, but yeah, you've been quoted in, uh, in some articles as saying it's plausible that within two years, Emma Models will be able to autonomously operate an online business and turn $100,000 into a million dollars over the period of a couple of months. Which seems it's a, it's a potentially super significant threshold that you highlight in the book, uh, which you call the modern Turing test. Now that I guess we've just completely blasted past the, <laughs> the, the normal old uh, Turing test. Um, now, to me, being able to run a business that turns a hundred thousand dollars into a million dollars sounds super impressive, and it's a very general task that involves engaging in a wide range of different activities and figuring out how to do them in some sensible order. And I guess uh, having superhuman performance, at least when it comes to the to the bottom line. At the same time, there's another interview where uh, you said. You agreed that we might well want to slow down advances in AI capabilities once they were getting close to getting dangerous, but you didn't foresee that being necessary for maybe another 10 years or so. Those, those two views feel in, in, in some tension to me and, and some listeners. Yeah, can, can you clarify what, what you think about all of that? So I think, um, I mean, there's an important clarification, which is a sort of cheeky addition, but is very significant, which I put in the, the modern Turing test, both in my articles, my tweets, and also in the book which is that I said it's plausible that that could happen in two years with minor human oversight, right? So there would be significant steps along that path where the human would have to, you know, register a company, uh, manage the bank account, um, you know, ultimately there will be a bunch of things that wouldn't be done completely autonomously. The individual components could be done autonomously. You could imagine the AI being given a general instruction to, you know, make up a product that was likely to be valuable um, and useful to people to generate that, to write all the communications required to go off and have that manufactured, to negotiate over the price, to, you know, identify a drop shipper, et cetera, et cetera. All of that, that could potentially happen. Yeah. What's what's the thing that would potentially make a model dangerous, but you think is going to be lacking in or likely to be lacking in two years time or, you know, whenever we have the kind of model that you think has the capability to, to run a business in that way? Well, look, I think it's really important, especially for this audience, to distinguish between the model itself being dangerous and the potential uses of these technologies, enabling people who have bad intentions to do serious harm at scale, right? And they're really fundamentally different because going back to your first question, the reason I said that I don't see any evidence that we're on a trajectory where we have to slow down capabilities development because there's a chance of, you know, runaway intelligence explosion or runaway recursive self-improvement or some inherent property of the model on a standalone basis having the potential, you know, in itself, in and of itself to cause mass harm. I, I still don't see that. And I stand by, you know, a decade time frame. I mean, in, to me, you know, I, I know that w- we in the AGI safety community are, are obsessed with timelines. It's just like yeah. the number one discussion whenever I go to any of these. So what is your timeline? Has it updated, et cetera, et cetera. I remember going to the Winter Intelligence Conference in Oxford in 2011 uh, I think it might have been the first proper convening of an AGI safety kind of conference. And at the end, um, it was sort of a day-long event and people handed around this scrappy like sheet of paper. I think it was one paper that got passed around and everybody like hand wrote their timelines for AGI. 
And obviously the spectrum was was huge. It was kind of a funny test. So, you know, like the timelines question obviously is super important. I don't mean to trivialize it. It is just funny how how obsessed we get about it. And I think that we're actually really, really bad at making these estimates. So when I say 10 years, what I'm actually saying is I'm not saying, you know, 10 years instead of eight or instead of 12. I'm saying it's a long enough time horizon that I would consider it medium term and hard for me to predict in other in anything other than blocks of time, like short, medium, or very far out, very far out being 20 years plus. But I think it's medium. And I think that's a that's like in itself a serious, you know, risk that I'm like giving a non-trivial percentage to some kind of existential threat over a decade. So just, you know, I take it very seriously. I'm not trying to trivialize it or anything. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So so maybe the idea is in in the short term over the next couple of years, we need to worry about misuse, where a model with human assistance directed to do bad things, that's an imminent issue. Whereas a, a model uh, running somewhere out of control and acting more autonomously without human support and, and you know, against human efforts to control it. That is more something that we might think about in 10 years' time and, and, and beyond. That's, that's, that's your guess. That's definitely my take. It's a, that's, that is the key distinction between misuse and autonomy, right? And I think that there are some capabilities which we need to track because, you know, those capabilities increase the likelihood that that, you know, um, you know that 10-year event might be sooner, right? So, for example... You know, if models are designed to have, you know, the ability to operate autonomously by default, right? So as an inherent, you know, design requirement, we're, we're engineering the ability to go off and design its own goals, to learn to use arbitrary tools, to, you know, really make decisions completely independently of human oversight and then the second capability related to that is obviously, you know, recursive self-improvement. If if models are designed to update their own code, um, to retrain themselves, you know, and and produce fresh weights as a result of new fine-tuning data or new interaction data of any kind from, you know, their environment, be it simulated or real world. You know, these are the kinds of capabilities that should give us pause for thought. Yeah, I see. I guess you would know better than me. My feeling is that quite a lot of people are working on trying to figure out how they can turn these models into autonomous agents that you know can act with progressively less human oversight. Um, what, what do you think is going to hold it back? That that means that it, we won't you know have really useful examples of that for another ten years. Well, I don't think we'll have useful examples of that. I do. I think that you, we may be working on those capabilities, but they won't necessarily represent an existential threat. I, I, I think what I'm saying is they indicate the beginning of a trajectory towards a greater threat, right? And, um, you know, like at inflection, we're actually not working on either of those capabilities, recursive self-improvement and autonomy. And I've chosen a product direction which I think can enable us to be extremely successful without needing to work on that. I mean, we're not an AGI company. We're not trying to build a super intelligence. We're trying to build a personal AI. Now that is going to have, you know, very capable, you know, AI-like qualities. Um, you know, it is going to learn from human feedback. It is going to, you know, synthesize information for you in ways that seem magical and surprising. It's going to have a lot of access to your personal information, but I think the quest to build general purpose learning agents which have the ability to perform well in a wide range of environments that can operate autonomously, that can formulate their own goals, that can identify new information in environments, new reward signals, and learn to use that as self-supervision, 
to, you know, update their own weights over time. This is a completely different quality of agent that is quite different, I think, to a personal AI product. Yeah. Recently, there's been this uh, big debate over the open sourcing of frontier AML models. Uh, Facebook has kind of persisted in publishing the weights for progressively more advanced uh, large language models, despite worries from US lawmakers about how they might be misused and whether it's so smart to make a habit of handing over strategic technology to American adversaries like China. And while Facebook, you know, they, they, they tuned their model to try to make it, uh, them less likely to be willing to help with criminal behavior. Once you have the raw weights, it's really trivial to get rid of any tuning like that. And, and, get, uh, and so you can kind of get the model to do wh- uh, whatever you want. And once you've given out the weights, you've kind of uh, ceded any control over that. What's your personal take on, on a model open sourcing? Well, first of all, I mean, you, you, you've raised three different things there. I, I'm not sure I would agree that it's trivial to um, remove the fine tuning and alignment, right? So that's one question. Second thing is, you know, should we be like, what is the logic of denying China, um, you know, access to frontier technologies? What are the consequences of that? What does that mean for, you know, global stability and the potential of real conflict? And then third, you know, is your question around open source, right? So let me kind of just go in reverse order. On the open source thing, Look, I think I've come out quite clearly pointing out the risks of large-scale access. I think I called it naive open source in 20 years' time, right? So that, what, what that means is if we just continue to open source absolutely everything for every new generation of frontier models, then it's quite likely that we're going to see a rapid proliferation of power. I mean, these are state-like powers which enable small groups of actors or maybe even individuals to have, you know, an unprecedented one-to-many impact in the world. You know, just as in the last wave of social media, you know, it sort of enabled anybody to have broadcast powers, you know, anybody to essentially function as an entire newspaper, you know, from the 90s. By the 2000s, you know, you could have millions of followers, you know, on Twitter or Instagram or whatever. And, you know, you're really influencing the world in a way that that was previously the preserve of a, you know, a publisher that in most cases was licensed and regulated, that was an authority that could be held accountable if it really did something egregious. And we, all of that has now kind of fallen away for good, by the way, reasons. And in, you know, in, in some cases with bad consequences, we're going to see the same trajectory with respect to access to the ability to influence the world. I mean, you can think of it as related to my modern Turing test that I proposed around, you know, artificial capable AI, like machines that go from being evaluated on the basis of what they say, you know, the imitation test of the original Turing um, test, to evaluating machines on the basis of what they can do. Can they use APIs? How persuasive are they of other humans? Can they interact with other AIs to get them to do things, right? So if everybody gets that power, that starts to look like, you know, individuals having the power of organizations or even states. Um, I'm talking about models that are like two or three orders of magnitude maybe four orders of magnitude on from where we are. And we're not far away from that. We're going to be training models that are 1,000x larger than they currently are in the next three years. I mean, uh, you know, even at inflection with the compute that we have, we'll be 100x larger than the current frontier models in the next 18 months. So that, that story, I mean, although I took a lot of heat on the open source thing, I clearly wasn't talking about today's models. I was talking about future generations, and I still think it's right. And I stand by that because I think that if we don't have that conversation, 
then we end up, you know, basically putting massively chaotic destabilizing tools in the hands of absolutely everybody. How you do that in practice, you know, somebody referred to it as like trying to, you know, catch rainwater, trying to stop <laughs> rain by catching it in your hands, <laughs> which I think is a very good uh, rebuttal. It's absolutely spawn. Of course, this is insanely hard, right? And I'm not saying that it's not, you know, difficult. I'm saying that it's the conversation that we have to be having, right? Yeah, I think so. So, yeah, I suppose how difficult is it in practice to to remove the, the fine tuning? I, I guess I was overstating it when I said it was uh, trivial. I suppose it requires a bunch of technical chops and you have to do a bunch of reinforcement learning from human feedback to kind of undo the constraints that have been put on the models. Is that the, is that the picture? Correct. Yeah. I mean, I, I think it's pretty hard. I, I, I think it's actually uh, certainly not trivial. And I think it requires significant expertise. And, you know, the, I think the other thing to think about is like, so one of the examples that we all have surfaced, you know, to the authorities is to do with bio and chemical weapons development, right? I mean, this clearly lowers the barrier to entry to being able to develop a potentially dangerous, you know, synthetic compound of some type, like maybe a weapon or maybe a pathogen or something like this. Now, that's for sure true. It's like it, it can act as a coach, you know, trying to, you know, nudge you along your path as you like actually put this together, where to get the tools from when you run into like technical challenges in the lab and so on. So I think it's for sure possible to remove that content, both from pre-training to align it out, etc., and really, really lower the um, the risk of people being able to do that. And I think it will be hard to re- expose those capabilities in models after the fact, even from open source. So, I mean, I'm not um, 100% sure on that, but I think it's going to be pretty hard. It definitely makes it much, much harder than just leaving it in there. But I think the second thing to think about is this knowledge and expertise is already available all over the web. So with bad actors, all we're trying to do is just make it as hard as we possibly can. You can't completely eliminate the risk. So at some point you have to ask yourself, like, what is the new risk that we have exposed by making a model like this available that isn't already, you know, a risk that we are exposed to given the accessibility of this information on the open web, which is clearly there, right? And I think that for open sourcing Llama 2, I personally don't see that we've we've increased the existential risk to the world or any catastrophic harm to the world in a material way whatsoever. Um, I, I, I think it's actually good that they're out there. Interesting. Yeah. So, so, I, so I agree with that. I'm not worried about, oh, I mean, I think that the current uh, models, the bad, out, the bad outcomes would mostly be that they could be a nuisance in some way. They could help with scamming people or something. But I'm concerned about having this precedent where people just say, we have to open source everything. <laughs> then I'm like, well, where does that leave us in five years or 10 years or 15 years or 20 years? Like they're going to just keep getting more powerful, you know, and currently it's kind of not really that much. It's not really any help with designing a bioweapon, but in 10 years time or 15 years time, it might be able to really make a really substantial difference. And yeah, I'm just not sure. Uh, I feel like we have to start putting some restrictions on open sourcing now, basically in anticipation of that. I think that's totally correct. And 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 I think that, unfortunately, there's there's a lot of like extreme anger in the open source community to that, which I can completely understand because it's affordable. Anyone can experiment with it. It has been the engine of progress in the past. And it's also not great coming from someone like me that has raised, you know, lots and lots of money and, you know, that has the, the opportunity to do this. So, I totally appreciate the kind of, you know, seemingly basically contradictory position where I'm just like reinforcing my own success kind of thing. So I totally accept that. 
unfortunately, I'm still I still believe I'm right. <laughs> so yeah. I, I'm genuinely like sincerely <laughs> well, well, committed to the right thing, even though it is a bit of a total conflict of interest. So hopefully other people can make this argument, too. Yeah. Well, I don't, I don't run an AI company and, and, I, and, I, and I think you're right. So thank you. <laughs> so maybe, maybe I'm more credible. Yeah. Um, what about the, the geopolitical angle? Do, do you think that it's possible that, you know, national security folks who are, think that AI is very strategic are going to take an interest in reducing open sourcing because they see it as handing over a strategically important technology to, to other countries? I think that's going to be quite likely. From all of my conversations over the last couple of years in the US, uh, to some extent also in the UK, um, I can see that there's just, you know, we've we've shifted from seeing the China as a strategic adversary, which is like a, you know, a phrase that implies that we can get along with one another, but it will be a little bit of jostling and we'll be competitors to, you know, seeing it as a fundamental threat, right? So, you know, the export controls from last year, you know, were really a declaration of economic war. I mean, we we're, you, we can haggle over whether... The H eight hundred enables them to do, you know, just about as much training compute as we can with an H one hundred. I mean, you know, I think in practice it probably slows them down by thirty to fifty percent because the H eight hundred can still be daisy chained together like the rest of the chips, and so you can really just, you know, buy fifty percent more of them, which I think is what a number of these companies have done. So I don't, you know, and I, I don't see them being held back a great deal uh, by this. However. They are going to be flatly denied access to the next generation. So Hopper Next is going to be completely nuts. I mean, it's a really, really powerful chip. Um, you know, so I think that's where people should focus their attention. Uh, it is a really significant, you know, block on their on their progress, and it's very difficult for them to to catch up by building other other um, you know chips from scratch and and, and so on. So. Yeah, it's it's really going to slow them down, and it's not going to go unpunished. I mean, they've already um, they've already hit back with sanctions of their own on some of the raw materials. So um, I expect to see more of that. Yeah, while you were involved with DeepMind and Google, you you tried to get a, a broader range of people involved in decision making on AI, at least in as much as it affected broader society. But in the book, you describe how those efforts more or less uh, came to naught. How high a priority is solving that problem relative to the other challenges that you talk about in the in, in the book? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, I I honestly spent a a huge amount of my time uh over the, you know, sort of 10 years uh that I was at DeepMind trying to put more external oversight as a core function of governance in the way that we build these technologies and you know, it was a pretty painful exercise. I mean, naturally power doesn't want that and um although I think Google is sort of well-intentioned, it's still you know, functions as a as a kind of traditional bureaucracy, and um, yeah, unfortunately, when we when we set up the Google Ethics Board, it was really in a climate when cancel culture was at its absolute peak, and our view was that we would basically have these sort of nine independent members that, you know, okay, although they didn't have legal powers to block a technology or to you know um, investigate beyond their scope. They were dependent on, you know, what we as Google DeepMind showed them. It still was a significant step to providing external oversight on, you know, sensitive technologies that we were developing. But I think people, you know, some people on Twitter and elsewhere felt that because we had appointed a conservative, the president of the Heritage Foundation, and she had made some 
transphobic and homophobic remarks in the past, um, quite serious ones, that meant that, you know, she should be cancelled and, and she should be withdrawn from the board. And and so within a few days of announcing it, people started campaigning on university campuses to force other people to step down from the board because their presence on the board was was complicit and implied that they like condoned her views and stuff like this. And I, I just think that was a complete travesty and, and really, really upsetting because we'd spent like two years trying to get this board going and it was a first step towards like you know real outside scrutiny over very sensitive technologies that were being developed and unfortunately you know it all ended um within a week and you know as as like three members of the nine stood down and then eventually she stood down and then we you know lost half the board in a week and it was just completely untenable and then the then the company turned around and were like well why are we messing around with this this is a waste of time <laughs> what a pain why in the would we bother? Yeah, yeah. what a pain in the ass <laughs> yeah so that, yeah yeah it was a very striking story to, to me reading reading that in, in in the book maybe you know people complain i think correctly that issues or decisions of enormous global importance historical importance are potentially going to be made inside these ai labs and you know the kinds of people who work at these labs are a very small fraction of the people in the world in terms of their political views their the values that they have the the things that they've studied the kind of uh, information that, that they happen to, uh, to, to to know. And so it would be good if we could get a wider, a right across section of the human population involved in, in scrutinizing or having some input on, on, the, on these. But to share power with the general public in the global south or you know, even just outside big cities in the US or UK will inevitably involve giving influence to people with views that I imagine are very offensive to, to Google staff, probably more offensive than, than Kay uh, Coles James, who, who had to resign from the board for having more conservative traditional views on gender. So, so based, based on that experience, it just seems like it's very unlikely to happen when we might just be flat out trying to get acceptance for having more input from a broader cross-section of educated people in the UK <laughs> into, into, into Google. Like that, that's going to be the most that people will tolerate. Yeah, I mean, totally. I mean, th- th- this is part of the problem, right? I mean, 40% of people in the US believe that, you know, trans rights are moving too quickly. 30% believe that abortion should be made illegal. 30-odd percent are against gay marriage. I mean, you know, like none of these I mean, and, views and, and are... And then, look, then, then think globally, right? <laughs> Right, right, exactly. Then think globally. So I think we have to, you know, just learn to sit down with people who we fundamentally disagree with. I mean, that goes for China and, you know, the Taliban and, you know, all, all these people who hold these views. Because if if we can't do that, then we've really got no chance of, of actually, you know, hearing one another out and changing one another's views and making progress. And I think the last two or three years, I feel like we've really taken a few backward steps in in that direction and it's it's super problematic it's because just demonizes the other and then we just end up you know hating on one another and it's very frustrating for us because you know we put a huge amount of effort to make that happen you know before that we when we were acquired we made it a condition of the acquisition that we have an ethics and safety board that in itself was a first step towards you know this kind of broader public effort then after the ethics and safety board we actually tried to spin DeepMind out as a global interest company, you know, one that was legally governed by, you know, the requirement to consider all of the stakeholders when making decisions. So it was a company limited by guarantee. And then the charter definition, you know, had a, an ethics and safety uh, mission for, you know, for AGI development. We were, we actually had the ability to spend vast amounts of our income on scientific and and, and social mission. You know, so it was a really creative and experimental structure 
but when there's you know sort of alphabet saw what happened with that board they they it, they basically just got cold feet that was the bottom line they saw what happened there and they were just like this is totally nuts this is the same thing's going to happen for your global interest company why do that and then eventually we pulled deepmind into um google and in in a way like deepmind was never independent and isn't independent now obviously now it's like completely you know part of part of google yeah yeah I mean, it is just that the core of trying to address representativeness is that you will be ceding power to people who don't share your values. <laughs> and, if, and if people are not willing to make that compromise, that is, that is not going to happen. Like, what, what do you think might be an incremental step that is realistic for some of these labs to get more, more input from, from broader society? Well, I'm really stuck. I think it's really hard. Like, there is another direction which involves the sort of academic groups getting more access and, you know, either actually doing red teaming or, you know, doing audits of scale or audits of model capabilities, right? They're the three proposals that I've heard made and I've been very supportive of and have certainly explored with people at Stanford and elsewhere. But I think there's a real problem there, which is if you take the average PhD student or postdoctoral researcher that might work on this, in a couple of years, they may, they may well go to a, you know, commercial lab, Right. And so if if we're to give them access, then they'll probably take that knowledge and expertise, you know, elsewhere, potentially to a competitor. I mean, it's an open labor market after all. So that isn't really a sustainable way of doing it. I met with Jen Easterly a few weeks ago, who runs the US cyber security agencies. And she and I were talking about maybe using, you know, more traditional pen testing consultants to do red teaming because, you know, they have a commercial incentive in keeping the information top secret. They've been cleared, you know, for a long time. They're trusted. But at the same time, they can make independent public statements, you know, about compliance with various standards or not. And I, I kind of prefer that direction um, in a way because they're, they're, they're clearly incentivized not to leak that information. And, and it's a sort of more commercial outfit. You know, we did have a pretty cool hybrid thing going at DeepMind for a while with with Toby Ord, you know, but I think Toby is an exceptional individual. I mean, he, he he's clearly been an EA since before EAs were a thing. And, you know, we, we've let him come and visit DeepMind when I was there at least pretty much every week for years. You know, but he he's not an engineer. He's committed his life to being, you know, an EA monk. And so, you know, and, and also I'm not even sure like how much impact that actually has in practice. I mean, I think he's a good person to have around, but I don't think that's like a practical oversight mechanism. We, we need more than that. <laughs> more that's than what I'm saying. <laughs> more than one guy. Yeah. That's what I'm saying. Totally, totally, yeah, yeah. totally. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Another experience that you share in, in the coming wave is trying to sound the alarm about the likely social effects of AI to your colleagues many years ago and kind of being being met with disinterest and, and, and blank stares. And some people in, in the tech industry, I, I guess probably a shrinking number now, still seem to have the attitude that everything is just very likely to be fine and all we have to do is advance everything as, as quickly as possible. And the central theme of your book is just that it might not be as simple as that. <laughs> um, over the years, have you found any arguments that are persuasive uh, and get skeptics in your industry to kind of sit up straight and take seriously the idea that we're closer to doing a tightrope walking act rather than just racing down a, a straight runway? That is a great question. Strategies for persuading people to care more about this issue. <laughs> yeah. um, the interesting thing is that when I, when I wrote that, uh, the first part of the book that mentions this idea of pessimism aversion, right, which is something that I've experienced my whole career. Like I've always felt like 
the weirdo in the corner who's, you know, sort of raising the alarm and kind of saying, hold on a second, we have to be cautious. Um, obviously, m lots of people listening to this podcast will probably be familiar with that because, we're, you know, we're all a little bit more fringe. But certainly in Silicon Valley, like, you know, that kind of thing, you know, I get called a D-cell sometimes, which I, I actually had to look up, <laughs> which actually means, I guess it's a play on me being an incel, which obviously I'm not, and some kind of decelerationist, you know, like, or Luddite or something, which is obviously also bananas, given like what I'm actually doing my company. <laughs> it's an extraordinary accusation. <laughs> yeah. It's funny, isn't it? So yeah, I mean... Um, people have this fear, particularly in the US, of pessimistic outlooks. I mean, the number of times, you know, people come to me and be like, well, you, you seem to be quite pessimistic. It's like, no, I just don't think about things in this simplistic, are you an optimist or are you a pessimist? This is just a terrible framing. It's like BS. I'm neither. I'm just observing the facts as I see them. And I'm doing my best to share for critical public scrutiny what I see. If I'm wrong, rip it apart and let's debate it. But let's not sort of like lean into these biases either way. So in terms of things that I've found productive in these conversations is, you know, frankly, the national security people are much more sober. And the way to get their head around things is to talk about misuse. I mean, it, you know, they... they they see things in terms of bad actors, non-state actors, threats to the nation state. And so in the book, you know, I've really tried to frame this as a, you know, implications for the nation state and stability. Because, you know, at one level, whether you're, you know, progressive or otherwise, we care about the ongoing stability of our current order. We really don't want to live in this like mad maxian, hyper libertarian, you know, chaos post nation state world. We you know, the nation state, I think we can all agree you know, that a shackled Leviathan does a good job of like putting constraints on, you know, the chaotic emergence of, of bad power and uses that to do redistribution in a way that keeps peace and prosperity, you know, going. So I think that there's general alignment around that. And if, if you make clear that this has the potential to be misused, I think that's effective. What What wasn't effective, I can tell you, was the obsession with superintelligence. You know, I honestly think that did a seismic distraction, if not disservice, to the actual debate. Like there was many more practical things because because I think a lot of people who heard that in policy circles just thought, well, this is not for me. This is a completely speculative. What do you mean recursive self-improvement? What do you mean like AGI superintelligence taking over? Like the, the number of people who barely have heard the phrase AGI but know about paper clips it's just unbelievable. Like, you know, people completely non-technical people would be like, yeah, I've heard about the paperclip thing. What, you think that's likely? I'm like, oh, geez, that, that is, stop <laughs> talking about paperclips. <laughs> yeah. So I think avoid that side of things, focus on misuse. Yeah, yeah. I, I suppose it seems like the, the paperclip thing is now more in the Overton window or the, or the superintelligence is now, uh, you, get, you get fewer people thinking that that's crazy today, uh, having seen the advances in the last year. Just say, well, imagine that we saw the progress of the last year, but it happened another 10 times for the next 10 years. <laughs> um, 100%. Yeah, that's the crazy thing is I certainly agree with that. The last year has been pretty crazy. And so yeah, and in 2010, I guess it was an idea ahead of its time, potentially, where, you know, maybe that was the thing to worry about happening in 2040 or 2050. But uh, it was just causing too many people to bounce because it wasn't clear that you could do like what to do. <laughs> yeah. And, and well, frankly, I would say even 2015, 2018 2020 i think it was premature for those kinds of things and and sort of isolated people that we wanted to get on our side obviously now it's kind of easy i mean that's that's the easiest way to demonstrate you know and persuade people that this is important is like make things available in open source 
have a bunch of people play with it, you know, identify the actual limitations and potential capabilities of these models in practice. And then we can all have a rational, sane debate about, you know, real things rather than sort of theoretical frameworks. And I I think we're actually in a really good place on that front from in terms of AGI safety. Like, I think it's never been, you know, sort of more well understood and more like I feel great relief. Yeah, I, Yeah. I feel great relief at this point. I'm like, amazing the cat's out of the bag everybody can make their own mind up i don't you know we this tiny group of us don't actually have to sort of make the theoretical case or speculate because everyone can just like you say 10x or 100x what they see in their favorite chatbot and um you know take it from there yeah from your many years in the the industry do do you understand the internal politics of ai labs that have staff who range all the way from being incredibly worried about AI advances to people who just think that there's no problem at all and just want everything to, to go as quickly as possible. I, I, I would have as an outsider expected that these groups would end up in conflict over strategy pretty often. But at least from my vantage point, I haven't heard about that happening very much. Things seem to run remarkably smoothly. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. Um, I think the general view of, of people who really care about AI safety inside labs like myself and, and others at OpenAI and, and some extent, well, to a large extent, DeepMind too, I think is that the only way that you can really make progress on safety is that you actually have to be building it. Unless you are at the coalface really like experimenting with, you know, the latest capabilities and you have resources to actually try to mitigate some of the harms that you see arising in those capabilities, then then you're always going to be playing catch up by a couple of years. I mean, I, I'm pretty confident that open source is going to consistently stay two to three years behind the frontier for quite a while, like at least the next five years. I mean, at some point, there really will be mega, you know, multi-billion dollar training runs. But I actually think we're farther away from that than people realize. I mean, I think people people's math is often wrong on these things. Like the yeah, can, can you explain that? Well, people talk about us getting to a ten billion dollar training run. I mean, we, we, that that doesn't that math does not add up. We're not getting to a single training run that costs ten billion dollars. I mean, that's that is many years away, five years away at least. Interesting. Is it maybe that they're thinking that it'll have the equivalent compute of $10 billion in like 2022 chips or something like that? Uh, is maybe that where the confusion's coming in, that they're thinking about it in terms of like the, <laughs> the, the compute increase? Because they may, may be thinking, well, I think there's going to be a training run that involves 100 times as much compute. But the thing is, by the time that happens, it doesn't cost anywhere near 100 times as much money. Well, Partly it's that. I mean, it could well be that, but then it will be two to three X less, right? It's not going to be 10 X less. It'll be two to three X less because each new generation of chip roughly gives you two to three X more flops per dollar. But yeah, I I just I've heard that number bandied around and I can't figure out how you squeeze $10 billion worth of training into six months. And unless you're going to train for three years or something, maybe, but like, yeah, yeah, that's unlikely. Yeah, it's pretty unlikely. So, but in any case, you know, I I think it is super interesting that open source is so close. And it's not just open source as a result of open sourcing frontier models like Llama 2, you know, or Falcon or these things. It is more interesting, actually, that these models are going to get smaller and more efficient to train. So if you consider that, like, GPT-3 was 175 billion parameters in the summer of 2020, right? So it's like three years ago, you know, and people are now training GPT-3-like capabilities at 1.5 billion parameters or 2 billion parameters, which is still may cost a fair amount to train, 
because the total training compute doesn't go down hugely, but certainly the serving compute goes down a lot. And therefore, many, many more people can use those models and more cheaply and therefore experiment with them. And I think that trajectory sounds like, to me, feels like it's going to continue for at least the next like three to five years. Yeah, yeah. But I guess the, and the broader point was that even people who are concerned feel like they need to be at the at the frontier in order to be understanding these models better and figuring out how to, how to make them safer. So that's the reason why kind of everyone is able to get along potentially because they all they all have an intermediate goal in, in common. That's exactly right. Yeah, I guess on on that general um, theme, a recurring question from submitted by listeners was ran right along these lines basically that you're, you're clearly alarmed about advances in AI capabilities in the, in the book and, and and you're worried that policy is lagging behind. Uh, and in the book, you propose all kinds of different policies for for containment, like auditing and using choke points to, to slow things down and you say we need to you know find ways of buying time slowing down giving i think a literal quote yeah finding ways of buying time slowing down giving space uh for more work on the answers but at the same time your company is building one of the largest uh, supercomputers in the world and you think over the next 18 months you might do a, a language model training run that's 10x or 100x larger than the one that produced uh, gpt4 like isn't it possible that your own actions are helping to speed up the race towards dangerous capabilities that that you wish were not going on so i i don't think that's correct for a number of reasons. First, I think the the primary threat to the stability of the nation state is not the existence of these models themselves, or indeed the, the existence of these models with the capabilities that I mentioned. The primary threat to the nation state is the proliferation of power, right? It's the proliferation of power, which is likely to cause catastrophe and, and chaos, right? Centralized power has a different threat, which is also equally bad and needs to be taken care of, which is authoritarianism and the misuse of, of that centralized power, which I care very deeply about, right? So that's for sure. But the I'm I'm not in the, as we said earlier, I'm not in the kind of AGI, you know, sort of recur- intelligence explosion camp that I think that just by developing models with these capabilities, suddenly it sort of gets out of the box, deceives us, persuades us to go and get access to more resources, gets to you know, sort of inadvertently update its own goals. You know, I think I think this kind of anthropomorphism is the wrong metaphor. I think it is a distraction. So the training run in itself, I don't think is, you know, sort of sort of dangerous at that scale. I, I, I really don't. And I, I think that the second thing to think about is there are these overwhelming incentives which drive the creation of these models, these huge geopolitical incentives you know, the huge desire to research these things in open source, as we've just discussed, you know, so the entire ecosystem of creation defaults to production, right? They're, they're, me not participating does not reduce, you know, cer- certainly doesn't, you know, reduce the likelihood that these models get developed. So I think the best thing that we can do is try to develop them and do so safely. And at the moment when we do need to step back from specific capabilities, like the ones I mentioned, recursive self-improvement and autonomy, um, then I will and we should. So just to clarify, on the misalignment uh, risk or the risk of the model being dangerous even to train, uh, you think that you know do, doing a 100x training run that's kind of just still producing a chatbot, a, 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 like a, a better GPT-4, even though that would be a more impressive model and a more capable model, uh, presumably, it's not dangerous because it's lacking essential components like autonomy and the ability to, to act in the world. Like it did, just, just producing an extremely good, and a much better GPT-4, it's not dangerous yet. In order for it to be dangerous, we need to add other capabilities like it acting in the world and having having broader goals. And that's like 5, 10, 15, 20 years away. We don't know exactly. But for that reason, it's not dangerous right now. And then you uh, 
in terms of encouraging other people to do stuff that's dangerous, like advancing capabilities uh, more quickly than would like. You just think that inflection AI, even if it's a big deal in, in this business ecosystem, the incentives are so clear. Everyone already wants to race ahead such that they're not like watching you and changing their behavior based on that very much. They're going to do the thing that they're going to do just because they think it's profitable for them. And like, and, and if you held back on doing that training run, it wouldn't shift their behavior. I think that's absolutely right. And the, the fact that we're at the table, you know, like, for example, at the White House recently signing up to the voluntary commitments, one of seven, seven companies um, in the US signing up to those commitments means that we're able to shape the distribution of outcomes to put the question of ethics and safety, you know, at the forefront in those kinds of discussions. So I think you get to shape the Overton window when it's available to you because you're a participant and a player. And I think that's true for everybody. I think everybody who is thinking about AI safety and is motivated by these concerns should be trying to operationalize their alignment intentions, their alignment goals, right? You have to actually make it in practice to prove that it's possible. I mean, if I think if if people have an opportunity to play with Pi, right? Pi uh, is our AI, our personal AI. It's called stands for personal intelligence. You can find it at pi.ai on the web and on, on the app store. You'll see that we've aligned it in very, very specific ways. It isn't susceptible to any of the jailbreaks or prompt hacks, any of them. If anybody gets one, send it to me on Twitter. We don't We don't suffer any of them. Why is that? Because we've made safety and behavior alignment our number one priority. And we've deliberately designed the model not to be general, right? So it doesn't generate code, right? It isn't designed to be the ultimate general purpose API that anybody can quote unquote prompt. It's a personal AI that you can talk to. Now, that doesn't mean it doesn't have any risks, right? It has other risks, right? Which are, okay, what are the values of this AI, you know, is it being persuasive? What kinds of conversations are people having with it? So there are other considerations that we have to be attentive to. But starting from a position of building these personal AIs with safety and ethics in mind is actually a core value of, of our company and I think shows in the product that we built. Yeah. So so Inflection AI primarily works on developing these hopefully much, much better chatbots. And it feels a little bit distant from many of the concerns that you lay out in in, in the coming wave. Could you elaborate a bit more on kind of what is the vision for how inflection is going to help tackle those threats that you're really worried about? Oh, well, I mean, most of the threats that I've described are actually things that the nation state has to address. I mean, I've long been an advocate of regulation. I mean, I, I, I don't necessarily think that as a company, we can really work on the threat of misinformation, right? I mean, we aren't you know, we, we don't make our uh, model available as an API for other people to, you know, generate new types of content on. So m- most of the time we're trying not to contribute to the harms, but we're also not, you know, sort of like actively participating in, you know, releasing new moderation tools or or things like that. I mean, I think OpenAI's release recently of the, um, you know, GPT-4 for moderation is excellent. You know, those kinds of things are awesome. I think Anthropic does lots of cool things like that. I think once we're a little bit bigger and a bit you know, more stable, when we're only 40 people at the moment, we'll add more people doing those kinds of things. You know, but for us, we're trying to build a product that consumers absolutely love that in and of itself is you know, as safe as it can be and is really useful and helps people and is super supportive and stuff like that. That's, that's really our goal. And then beyond that, we're advocating for regulation. Um, I think that's the way that this is going to really change. 
Yeah. Okay, yeah, I'll come back to regulation in just a second. But in, in the book, you talk very positively about the idea of having an Apollo program for technical AI safety research, that just we need to put a lot more effort into this. Yet, does Inflection intend to develop or apply any particular technical AI alignment methods in order to make its uh, models safer or, or, to, or to develop those methods more in a way that might scale up to, to even and be useful for even more capable models? I mean, yes, definitely. I mean, you know, right now, what you see in Pi today is actually one of our smaller models, and soon it will be much, much larger. But the methods for alignment are the same ones that we've all been using to, you know, improve, you know, the the controllability and performance of these models. So, you know, obviously, one of the reasons why we've been able to get it to behave so closely to our our behavior policy is that we basically really fine tune it very aggressively and we spend a lot of time you know doing RLHF on it and you know using other methods and so on so we've definitely advanced the state of the art there um we published a a tech report not detailing too many insights but describing the results that we've got in our pre-trained model um and we've achieved state of the art performance for our compute size so uh compared to GPT 3.5 to Google's Palm, to Claude One, uh, to Chinchilla, uh, we beat all of those models on on most of the public benchmarks like MLU and so on. So on the pre-training side, and actually we've done um, similar things, slightly harder to measure and compare on on the fine tuning and alignment side. So we haven't published anything on the, on the alignment side, but we've achieved um, you know similar state of the art progress there, um, and soon we'll publish something else on on our on our new pre-training run which is is much much larger yeah many people including me were super blown away by the jump from gpt 3.5 to gpt 4 do you think people are going to be blown away again in the next year by the leap to you know these these hundred x the compute of gpt 4 models well i think that what people forget is that the difference between 3.5 and 4 is 5x. <laughs> mm. So it's, it's you know, I guess just, you know, because of our human bias, we just assume that this is a tiny increment. It's not. It's a, it's a huge multiple of total training flops. So the difference between 4 and 4.5 will itself be enormous. I mean, we're going to be significantly larger than 4 uh, in time as well once we're finished with our training run. So, you know, it, and it, it really is much, much better. And I think, look, the, the exciting thing is that one of the key emergent capabilities at each new order of magnitude in compute is alignment. You look back at GBT3 and everyone said, well, these models are always going to be racist and toxic and biased and da, 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 da. Well, it turns out that the larger they get, the better we can, you know, the better job we can do at aligning them and constraining them and getting them to produce extremely nuanced and precise um, behaviors. That's actually a great story because, you know, that's exactly what we want. We want them to behave as intended. And I think that, um, you know, that's one of the capabilities that emerge as they get bigger. Yeah. What do you think of Anthropic's approach to to the arms race issue? I guess they're they're doing a kind of middle ground thing where they try to kind of lead from second place. So if another lab trains something, then they'll train it themselves in order to study it. And if another lab releases something uh, publicly, then they'll they'll do so as well because they figure the cat's out of the bag. But they're reluctant to be the first to train or release anything because they're worried that that could, uh, you know... uh, Make make the competitive race somewhat more fierce. Do you, do you think uh, that that's just kind of a mistake, or, or or do you see where they're coming from? I don't think it's true that they're not attempting to be the first train at scale. That's not true. Interesting. Okay, yeah, you you, you don't buy that. That's a. Uh, I mean, have I misunderstood what they what they think that they're doing? 
I don't know. You have to ask them. I mean, I, I don't want to. I love. I like them very much, and I have huge respect for them. So I don't. I don't want to say anything bad if that's what they've said. But like, you know, also I think Sam said recently they're not training GPT five. I mean, come on. I mean, it's just like. I, I I don't know. I think it's better that we're all just straight about it. That's why we disclose the total amount of compute that we've got. Because it's like, and, and obviously you can work out from that, roughly speaking, what order of magnitude of flops we're using. It's much better that we're just transparent about it. You know, we're training models that are bigger than GPT-4, right? We have 6,000 H100s in operation today, training models. By December, we will have 22,000 H100s fully operational. And every month, you know, between now and then we're adding, you know, one to 2,000 h one hundred. So people can work out what that enables us to train by spring, by summer of next year, and we'll continue training larger models. And I think that that's the right way to go about it. Just be super open and transparent. I think Google DeepMind should do the same thing. You know, they should they should declare how many flops Gemini is trained on. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. I'll, I'll go back and check uh, what, what Anthropic says that it's doing <laughs> in, in this respect. And I can add a, add a cut in to clarify in case I've, I've, I've gotten the wrong, wrong end of the stick. Hey, listeners, Rob here. I took a quick look into this and I realized where I'd gotten my impression of Anthropic's uh, philosophy around uh, arms races and releases and so on. Uh, It's from an article titled The $1 Billion Gamble to Ensure AI Doesn't Destroy Humanity, uh, which was in Vox and was written by the journalist Dylan Matthews. Perhaps my characterization was a little bit loose, but I think it's it's broadly consistent with what's reported in that article as the mentality that Anthropic was trying to have at least last year in 2022. Uh, Of course, whenever I read journalist articles, whenever, whenever I read newspaper articles and i know a ton about the topic i tend to find that they're not super precise and sometimes they're uh, completely wrong so the fact that this has been reported by a journalist who i really like doesn't necessarily mean that it's completely reflective of anthropic's approach but nonetheless if you, if you want to look uh, into it more then uh, yeah the one billion dollar gamble to ensure ai doesn't destroy humanity is the article to take a look at all right back to the show so as you mentioned earlier, in, in, in July, uh, Inflection signed on to eight voluntary commitments uh, with, with, the, with the White House, including things like committing to internal and external security testing and investing in cybersecurity and insider threat safeguards and facilitating third-party discovery and reporting of vulnerabilities. Th- those are all voluntary, though. What commitments would you like to become legally mandatory for all major AI labs in the US and UK? <laughs> that is a good question. Um So I think some of those voluntary commitments should become legally mandated. Number one would be scale audits, right? What what size is your latest model, right? Number two, there needs to be a framework for harmful model capabilities like bioweapons, coaching, nuclear weapons, chemical weapons, general bomb-making capabilities, those things are pretty easy to document and it, you know it just should not be possible to reduce the barriers to entry for people who don't have specialist knowledge to go off and manufacture those things more easily. The third one that I, I have said publicly and that I care a lot about is that we should just declare that these models shouldn't be used for electioneering, right? It just shouldn't be part of the political process. Ban that. Yeah. You shouldn't be able to ask Pi, you know, who Pi would vote for or like what the difference is between these two candidates. Now, the counter argument is that many people will say, well, this might be able to provide useful and accurate and valuable information to educate people about elections, et cetera, et cetera. Look, there is never going to be a perfect solution here. You, you have to take benefits away in order to avoid harms. And that's always the trade-off. You can't have perfect you know, benefits without any harms, right? Like So that, that's, that's just the trade-off. I would rather just take it all off the table 
and say that we... We can put some of it back later on once we've once we understand how to do it safely. That's the best way. That is totally the best way. Now, obviously, a lot of people say that I'm super naive in claiming that this is possible because, you know, models like Stable Diffusion and Llama 2 are already out in open source and people will certainly use that for electioneering. Again, this isn't trying to, you know, resolve every single threat vector to our democracy. It's just trying to say, like, at least the large scale hyperscaler model providers, you know, like Amazon, Microsoft, Google, you know, and others should just say this is against our terms of service, right? So you're just making it a little bit more difficult and maybe even a little bit more taboo if you don't declare that your election materials are human generated only. Yeah. If I, if I remember correctly, uh, Twitter just banned election advertising on their platform at some point. And I think that made made their life a whole lot easier than trying to filter everything extremely carefully. Um, yeah. Uh, speaking of Twitter, you, you've celebrated the UK government's upcoming AI safety summit, uh, which is in just a few months. What what outcome do you think should be the top priority for the, for the people organizing it? Who, who I think listen to this show, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, look, they're all good guys, Ian and Matt and, 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 and Kate and all those other people. They're, they're all doing a great job. I'm really glad to see the summit. So um, look, I think it's an opportunity to put in place some of the proposals that came out of the voluntary commitments and maybe put that on a legislative path. Um, Audits, you know, collaboration between the companies to share best practices. I mean, that was one thing I didn't list in the kind of legal requirements things. I think it's a bit complicated, but I think it would be good if there was a culture of sharing vulnerabilities and weaknesses, just like um, you know, zero-day exploits or other kind of cybersecurity bugs get disclosed confidentially to the companies for, I think, 60 days or so until um, there's a kind of like public exposure of it. So those are the sorts of things that I think would be really helpful. Yeah. Yeah, I know, I know you're on the book tier and I've got, and I've, and I've got to go uh, in just a minute. But maybe one, one final question or theme is, so... I don't quite understand the. Um, it, it seems it seems like you don't want to talk so much about misalignment or deceptive alignment or, or or like models having their own goals and running out of control. But at the same time, it seems like you you agree with me and many other people that, that could be an issue in ten or fifteen, twenty years time. We don't know exactly, but like that will be an issue at, at some point if, if the capabilities uh, keep keep going up. In a sense, like even if you agree it's not going to be an issue for ten years, ten years is not that far away, and it seems like it could be quite a difficult problem to solve. Like, isn't it still quite urgent that people be taking seriously misalignment and trying to figure out how? How we will address it when it becomes a becomes a problem. Yeah, yeah. No, no, forgive me. I didn't mean to trivialize it. I, I, I was more talking about the tactics of talking about these things publicly. I see. Yeah. So yeah, 100%. is a super critical issue. We need 10x more people focused on misalignment. I mean, in general, I'm a bit sensitive to the idea of deception, because I think it's, it's, it's in itself a kind of anthropomorphism. But that's a technicality. I mean, in general, I think absolutely the, the fundamental questions of, of, of misalignment and, and, and in general AGI safety and the 10-year risks and the 20-year risks, you know, couldn't be more important. I think more people should be researching it. And, and I, I'm, I'm always, you know, a big believer in supporting it. All right. Um, my guest today has been Mustafa Suleiman, and the book is uh, The Coming Wave. I, I think it's a, it's a book that's going to make a significant wave uh, in, the, in, in the media over, over, over the next month or two. Uh, so, yeah, best of luck with the, with the book tour. Thanks a lot, Rob. I really appreciate it. And thanks for all your work on the podcast. It's super awesome to see uh, all the attention that these issues get. And I think that is in no small part because of the work that you and the rest of the community do to popularize it. So thank you. It's a huge service. What a brisk one hour there. I was really talking quite fast to manage to get in some extra questions. 
If such a short interview leaves you wanting more from 80,000 Hours, you can find all the new stuff from our research team at 80,000hours.org slash latest. Uh, recently, they've written about why you might consider switching careers and what it takes to, to go and do that, and why it is that so many people underrate uh, investigating the problem that they choose to work on. All right, the 80,000 Hours podcast is produced and edited by Kieran Harris. The audio engineering team is led by Ben Cordell with mastering and technical editing for this episode by Myla Maguire. Katie Moore puts together full transcripts and extensive collection of links to learn more. Available on our site, 80,000hours.org, as always. Thanks for joining. Talk to you again soon. Hold up. 